This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Throughout legal history, there have been countless arguments brought before courts for why a defendant committed murder. Lawyers attempt time and time again to justify the actions of their clients, with only one goal in mind, acquittal. From the mental disorder defense, otherwise known as the insanity plea, to the more common ones like self-defense, judges and juries are tasked with deciding if these arguments are believable. They listen to experts and witnesses, pour over Exhibit A and Exhibit B, and ponder whether or not there's reasonable doubt. They do this for every case brought before them. They scrutinize even more, perhaps, for those few who claim they kill someone while sleeping. Take for instance the widely covered case of Kenneth James Parks. Back in 1987, the 23-year-old Canadian man who had a history of sleepwalking was charged with murder and attempted murder. While not uncommon charges, what caught the attention of the media and the world alike was his plea, not guilty, due to the fact that he was asleep when he committed the crimes. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. In the early hours of May 24, 1987, Ken Parks, married and father to a newborn five-month-old baby girl, got out of bed, got in his car, and drove the 14 miles to his in-law's house, allegedly while still fast asleep. When he arrived at their house, he let himself in with the key they had given him, and immediately started assaulting his father-in-law, Dennis Woods, before beating and stabbing his mother-in-law, Barbara Woods, to death. With the vicious assault over, Ken Parks got back in his car and drove to the local police station. His recollections of the recent events were spotty and disjointed, and as he walked into the station seeking help, he announced to the officers, quote, I think I killed somebody. I don't know what happened. I saw the face of Barbara Woods. It looked very sad to me, but I don't know what happened. I think I did something terrible. From the moment Parks walked into the police station, his claim that he didn't know what he had done because he was sleeping throughout the entire ordeal was met with contempt and disbelief. Even the experts, who specialized in sleep disorders, were highly doubtful that he could have committed such brutal acts while remaining, seemingly, oblivious. But as the investigation continued, those same experts would find their outlook changing. The police made a very important observation he had cut the tendons of all his fingers, the flexor tendons. In the process of stabbing his mother-in-law and his father-in-law, the kitchen knife must have slipped through his fingers and he cut the flexor tendons. He showed no pain, he felt no pain. And in the subsequent trial, that was very important evidence to indicate that he was not really with it, not awake. 
Because people, if they're awake, will have incredible pain after cutting basically 10 tendons of your hands. One of the first steps in the investigation was to conduct an EEG on Mr. Parks, a test that detects electrical activity in the brain. The results were surprising, to say the least. They showed extremely irregular brain patterns. Sleepwalking is caused by several factors. Psychological and physical distress and extreme fatigue are the most common. Sleepwalking occurs when the brain attempts to wake from a deep sleep, but gets stuck in the middle, not sure if it's awake or sleeping. While normally, a sleeping person will never experience this kind of episode, the EEG tests on Kenneth Parks showed that he experienced this upwards of 20 times a night. Perhaps most importantly, EEG tests cannot be faked or manipulated. The skeptics were becoming intrigued. Experts and authorities alike began to believe that the most likely explanation was, in fact, what Kenneth Parks had been saying all along. Parks never deviated from his story, frustrating authorities who constantly tried to catch him in a lie or find inconsistencies. Even after almost 10 interviews, his description of events never wavered. When they examined the timeline leading up to and including the attack, experts started piecing together what may have led to his unusual state of mind. About a year before the attack, Parks had become badly in debt due to an ever-growing gambling problem. He started taking funds from the family savings to pay off his losses, and when that ran out, he started stealing money from his employer. He was fired in March 1987, when the company became aware of the embezzling scheme. The financial troubles, loss of his job, and marital difficulties, compounded with the challenges of caring for a newborn child, resulted in an overwhelming stress and depression. Those factors, coupled with the fact that he hadn't slept the night before, experts believe, triggered the sleepwalking episode. Parks had planned to go over to his in-laws the day of the 24th to discuss his financial troubles. His relationship with them was described as very close, with his mother-in-law calling the 6-foot-5-inch tall, 280-pound Parks her gentle giant. Authorities considered the family's tight relationship as another reason to believe that Parks had not intended to attack them. No matter how hard they investigated, they were unable to establish any sort of motive. The fact that Parks had never changed the details of his story, and given the indisputable EEG results, authorities were forced to acknowledge that this was truly the only explanation that worked. In May 1988, a jury agreed with authorities and experts and acquitted Kenneth Parks, making international headlines and shocking many who believed that his story was a work of pure fiction. In 1992, the Supreme Court of Canada agreed with the original verdict and upheld the acquittal. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen.
Could you be lying down in bed at night and then getting back up on your feet without even knowing it? A new study in the journal Neurology finds that more people may be sleepwalking than experts previously thought. Nearly 20,000 adults answered a survey about their sleep habits and their physical and mental health. Take the stranger-than-fiction case of Robert Ledru. The year was 1887, and Ledru was a detective with the civil police force in France. He had a reputation as a no-nonsense, thorough investigator who had a talent for solving murders. It was because of this talent that he was sent to the town of Le Havre, located in the region of Normandy. Several men had disappeared under suspicious circumstances, and Ledru was there to assist local authorities with the investigation. It was evening when he arrived in the waterfront town, and he decided to go to bed early. The following morning, Ledru visited the police station to start his investigation of the missing men. He was immediately told that another, more pressing matter would need his attention. A murder had taken place on the beach overnight, and the detective was asked to investigate. The victim was a Paris business owner who had come to the beachside town for health reasons. André Monet was found that morning on the shore with a bullet hole through his chest. With no apparent motive for the killing, the detective began searching the area for clues. Right away, he spotted footprints leading straight to the victim's body, and another set of footprints leading away. What struck Ledru was the fact that the right footprint appeared to be missing the big toe. A solid clue to say the least, and one that clearly perplexed the detective, according to other officers on the scene. Ledru had plaster moldings made of the footprints, and reportedly sat for hours on the beach staring at them. The officers on scene noted that the detective did not interview anyone or ask any questions of the numerous bystanders who may have had information about the incident. Instead, he took the plaster molds back to his hotel room, where he remained for the rest of the evening. When he arrived at the police station the next day, he was presented with a bullet that had killed André Monet. The bullet had been found during the intense search for evidence the day before. Ledru inspected the bullet and soon after announced that he was certain who the murderer was. Removing his service revolver from its holster, Ledru confirmed what he had suspected since the previous day. He was, in fact, the killer. The evidence was conclusive, and the detective began explaining. His revolver had recently been fired, and a comparison of the recovered bullet confirmed that it came from his pistol. Even more damning was the fact that Ledru exactly like the right footprint on the beach, was missing the big toe on his right foot. The detective had also noticed that the morning of the murder, he awoke to find his socks and shoes soaking wet. At the time, Ledru was confused to say the least, but with the mounting evidence, he was unable to escape the conclusion that it was he who had committed the murder. The detective returned to Paris the following day, and went directly to his superiors to recount the events that had unfolded in the beach town. He laid out the evidence, which included the plaster molds of the footprints, the fatal bullet, and his revolver. His pistol was from a German manufacturer, and forensics had established that the bullet was fired from a German-made weapon. He, and the killer, shared the uncanny similarity of missing the big toe on the right foot. Then, there was the fact that when he awoke the morning of the shooting, he found his socks and shoes were soaking wet. Ledru speculated that he had gone to the beach in the middle of the night, 
while in a trance or in a state of sleep. Then happened upon André Monet, who was enjoying the solitude of the quiet waterfront. Ledru suggested that a fight had broken out, or that he, the killer, was simply annoyed with the presence of a stranger on the beach. As unsure as Ledru was about the events leading up to the murder, he was certain about the events that followed. The killer shot the stranger through the chest, returned to his hotel room, and went back to bed. He suggested that he was likely mentally or physically ill, and would most certainly, albeit unintentionally, commit the same type of crime again. For this reason, the detective insisted that he be arrested and placed in a secure environment to ensure he didn't hurt anyone else. Initially, Ledru's superiors dismissed his explanation. It was too incredible to be taken seriously. The highly respected detective presented the evidence several times, eventually convincing his superiors that he really was the shooter. He was also successful at convincing them that he was not awake when the murder occurred. In the time leading up to the killing, it was noted that Ledru had been overworked, mentally distressed, and physically weakened by an untreated virus. If there had been any doubts, they were dispelled not long after when Ledru was in jail. As an experiment, authorities gave Ledru a fully loaded pistol. The bullets, understandably, were blanks. Under constant supervision, he was observed several times harmlessly sleepwalking. But late one night, the detective got out of bed, took the pistol, and shot at officers guarding his cell. He was standing within inches of one guard, who later reported that Ledru seemed completely unaware of his actions. Now absolutely convinced that Ledru was not responsible for the murder of André Monet, but unsure if he would be a risk to public safety, authorities sent him to live out the rest of his life on a farm not far from Paris. To the guards, doctors, and nurses who kept close watch over him, Ledru occasionally recounted the events of his unbelievable tale. Robert Ledru, the detective who investigated a murder, only to discover that he was the killer, died in 1937. Hi, I'm calling on behalf of my friend. She's 58 years old. Her problem is causing her a lot of trouble. She started having terrible nightmares and sleepwalking. It's been pretty constant for the past two months. She did not used to have nightmares, and she hasn't sleepwalked since she was a child, as far as she's aware. More recently, the case of Brian Thomas made news when the 57-year-old from the south of Wales was acquitted of murdering his wife. While on a road trip in July 2008, he and his wife Christine were sleeping in their RV. Brian woke up to find that he had strangled her to death. The retired steelworker told emergency operators that he was fighting several young intruders during a vivid dream. He was recorded saying, quote, What have I done? I've been trying to wake her. I think I've killed my wife. Oh my God. I thought someone had broken in. I was fighting with those boys, but it was Christine. I must have been dreaming or something. What have I done? Now, lots of people have nightmares. What's the difference between that and a night terror? In my night terror, somebody's always trying to kill me. So I'm just constantly just running around, trying to get away, trying to get away and if that means 
going to my window, the door, anything. Old. And have you ever done anything dangerous? Dangerous, dangerous. Brian Thomas had suffered from sleepwalking and night terrors for most of his life, and it had gone untreated. On top of that, before they left on the road trip, he had stopped taking medication used to treat depression. Family and friends testified at his trial that he was an adoring husband, and they were a happy couple. The childhood sweethearts had booked a trip for their upcoming 40th anniversary, and showed no signs of stress in their marriage. By all accounts, they were a couple still very much in love. His two children told the court about his history of sleepwalking and the strange things they sometimes witnessed him doing at night. Every choice that we're making during the day, everything that we're doing during the day, is going to impact on how you sleep. And some people are particularly sensitive. You know, these bizarre things that happen while we're sleeping, and when we're sleeping, we should be resting. You know, we should be restoring. Experts testified that examination results confirmed Brian Thomas experienced behavioral patterns consistent with night terrors. They said they were confident that a unique set of variables led to the tragic event, and it was unlikely that he was a risk to the public. In 2009, after 10 months in jail, Brian Thomas was released when the court found him not guilty. In his closing statement, the judge said, quote, You are a decent man and a devoted husband. I strongly suspect that you may well be feeling a sense of guilt. In the eyes of the law, you bear no responsibility. You are discharged. All of us who have been in court and who listened to the call know exactly what your feelings were when you found that your wife was dead. In all these cases, the victims were killed by people who were experiencing what experts call a perfect storm of psychological and physical stresses. The circumstances required for a homicidal sleepwalking episode to occur is rare and courts are not easily convinced. In January 1997, Scott Fulater was found guilty of first-degree murder after stabbing his wife 44 times and then drowning her. You okay? Obviously you think I did it. I don't... I don't know what makes you think that. Well, because I had a neighbor staring at you watching you do it, that's why. Neighbors saw me pushing her in the pool. You've got to be kidding. I'm sorry, I don't remember doing it. He claimed that he was sleepwalking when he committed the grisly murder. That he was still asleep when he changed his outfit and put his old clothes and shoes in a garbage bag. He explained that he was dreaming when he placed the bloody knife in a plastic container and threw that too in the garbage bag still fast asleep when he hid the garbage bag inside the spare tire of his car. I think all the evidence says he was awake, and uh, all the evidence says uh, his behaviors were far too complicated to be uh, sleepwalking. Filater was sentenced to life with no chance of parole. In 2001, a Spaniard named Antonio Nito killed two family members with an axe and hammer, claiming that in his dream, he was defending himself from attacking ostriches. Yes, the large birds. 
This is the largest bird in the world. Standing around nine feet tall, it can weigh over 300 pounds. The bizarre explanation was contradicted by other family members who witnessed the killings. They told the Spanish court that he clearly recognized them and had instructed them to keep the lights off in an effort to hide the murder scene. Nito was ordered to undergo psychiatric treatment, and in 2007, he was officially sentenced to an additional 10 years in a psychiatric institution. There's a reason so few people are acquitted of killing someone using the homicidal sleepwalking defense. Would you believe it? Oh, sleep. I love my sleep. I absolutely love my sleep. Um, I can't imagine not getting sleep. True is a production of Imperative Entertainment. This episode of True was researched and written by me. The executive producer is Jason Hoke of Imperative Entertainment. Cover art and design was created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Comments? Questions? Get a hold of us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.